Melissa. And Heidi. We want to welcome you to today's episode of Beyond the Defense podcast. As always, we thank our return listeners and welcome those of you who are new and just joining us for the first time. Today we're chatting with Dr. Lara B. Gresk, who recently completed her doctoral research entitled, You're Happy and You Know It, Social Cognitive and Environmental Factors Impact on Iraqi Student Satisfaction. Rachel earned her PhD at the University of Nebraska, where she graduated in October 2020, and we're very excited that she's joining us for a conversation about some very unique research. Thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Gresk. Could you start by introducing yourself to our listeners? Absolutely. Um, well, first of all, thank you for, for having me here. My name is Dr. Rachel Larrabee Gresk. I'm the Assistant Vice President of Academic Affairs at the American University of Suleimani, Iraq. And I have been in Iraq for since 2009, worked at the institution there. I love it. I know Iraq is kind of a, as soon as people hear that, there's a little bit of a, wait a minute, <laughs> let's talk about that. So I'll, I'll talk about that more in the dissertation, but me and my husband, my whole family, we, we've lived there for many years. I love it. I have two kids. Actually, I have a five-week-old just now, so I just delivered a, a five weeks ago, a beautiful baby girl, and I have a toddler who's two, full of a lot of energy, so it's been an exciting, exciting time during COVID, but I'm really grateful to be here, and I'm really proud to work in higher education, especially now. I think that this is, we're in an interesting moment post-COVID of trying to understand how do we handle this? How do we pivot? How do we adjust to better serve our students? And I'm excited to still be in the field, but especially in Iraq, where I think it needs a lot of people to put our heads together and see what we can do to offer the best education we can. So I'm grateful for the experience. So thank you for this. Your dissertation is in broad strokes about student satisfaction of Iraqi students at the intersection with self-efficacy and and some other concepts, some other factors. Why is this topic important to you? How did you end up on this particular topic for your study? Yeah, I think, um, actually, I appreciate my advisor, Dr. Beth Newhouse, who is amazing, and I owe so much to her, um, asked me the same question. I mean, she actually asked more bluntly, which I always appreciate. She's like, well, why do we care about satisfaction? And I think a lot of people in, in higher education ask that, why do we care about student satisfaction? And I think most of us, when we, we think we care about what students learn, and we want to, we measure that. And, and that's, that's the real thing that we care about. And why do we care if students are, are happy or not? And there's a, there's a few reasons for that. And so I want to, first of all, talk about why I chose satisfaction and why Iraq is so important. And so first of all, why I think student satisfaction is so important is at the end, it informs us, the public and the institution, how the students feel about their experiences. And I think sometimes we don't want to ask that question because it's a scary question to ask ourselves. We just say, no, 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 we just care if you learn. But asking them how they feel about their academic satisfaction is an extremely important question, especially given how much students give up now to go to college. And I'm talking about time and finances. When my parents went to university, it was practically free. For us, we're spending, students now are spending in the U.S. up to 25000 a year, if not more. It's, it's more than a mortgage. We're asking them to give up years and all of this money to, to trust in the system that this will get them a better job or a better life or help with mobility. So we owe it to them and we owe it to ourselves to ask ourselves, how, how are we doing? And I think that that's an honest reflection. That and the fact that, frankly, we have to, student, student satisfaction leads to and is completely correlated to better enrollment, retention of students, students' achievement. And so to not ask that, I think, is, is, is denying the fact that students have now choice and students have a lot of choice now. And if they are not satisfied, they do go elsewhere. And frankly, they should. And so for us to do better at our jobs, we need to ask these, these questions. And better yet, if we don't like the answers, we still need to ask those questions and we need to do something about it because we owe it to them. So for me, that's why I think student satisfaction matters. And I, I, I often don't think we ask it enough. Iraq, clearly, I mean, I, I lived in Iraq. I, I love Iraq. I love my institution that I've been at. And it's, it's a particularly, I think, important why I wanted to do Iraq so much is because for so long, everybody, especially in America or anywhere in the West, if you hear Iraq, you immediately think bombs, Baghdad, ISIS, 
people always ask me, are you safe? Are you okay there? And I, and I laugh and I'm like, I am safer there than I ever was in Baltimore where I am in Chicago. Absolutely. It's an amazing place. It is completely different than the Iraq we frame ourselves in our head. So for me, it was important to not just write about Iraq, but not write about the war, not talk about post-conflict and what not just the developing world, but post-conflict societies are dealing with. And post-conflict societies are just like everywhere else. They're trying to improve their education system. And to do that, we need to ask these questions. How are we doing? How do students feel about their academic experiences? And what role the student has and what role the institution has in playing in that role. And I was interested in that part, not just, you know, students will change and develop as, as they come, but what role does the institution have in ensuring that students are satisfied and how we can improve that? So those were the, the things that I really was important to me of why I chose that topic. And then before we really get into, you know, the methodology and the findings of your study and what it all means, can you give us a little bit of background on the region, the educational system, particularly in terms of higher education there? Like, what, is it, what does it look like in the past 50 years or so? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I appreciate the question because I think that that's an important concept, especially in, in America. So in the United States, there are public and private institutions that are both excellent. And usually when we ask ourselves and try to measure quality, we're asking ourselves, is it a for-profit or a not-for-profit institution? And that's the real question. And the majority of institutions, especially the best high-ranking ones, are all not-for-profit so a private institution in America is the one that we're all a little bit of cringe and we're always weary about. And we're like, oh, they're just trying to make money. But that has nothing to do if the school is public or private. So I went to both. I both received, I received excellent education at both a small public private institution and a very large public institution. Both were excellent. In Iraq, that is completely different. The vast majority of education in Iraq is public for the public good. 90% of students go there and it's free. So you have very large institutions, and this is a beautiful thing that Iraq is doing this and investing their resources in to offer free education for the masses. And you can receive different degrees. They have different rules. Everything changes, but they are really trying to say they believe in the social good that everybody should receive a free education. And so private institutions are a very small sliver of the population. And what's interesting, though, was private institutions in Iraq are usually for profit, so they have a real, there's a real negative connotation even for private institutions because it's assumed you're paying a lot of money and someone's making a profit off of you. And that's why they're doing it. It's a business. And so in Iraq, private institutions, usually sometimes there's a little bit of a hesitation because it has a bad reputation. The American University of Iraq, Sulaymaniyah, is the first and only and actually had to create a law to have a private not-for-profit institution. And this still confuses people. And so the reason this distinction is so important is it is already a new thing to say that you can have a private institution that is not for profit. It's not going for anybody. This is going to allow students more student choice. It's allowing people to go into the private sector. It's allowing to experiment with different methodologies and innovation. The schools themselves, for example, the AYS, the institution that I did the study at, um, is able to mirror a lot of their educational choices towards the, the U.S. And so we, we try to offer a lot of classes there. And this is completely different. So right now, the public system is where the majority of students are going. Private institutions need to hustle, if you would, for students. There's not a lot of students that can afford to pay, that want to pay, that want to go through the barriers especially at an institution that prides itself of being not profit. So they pride themselves of being difficult. It's very hard to get in. It's very hard to pass. So it is right now an institution that um, I believe it is really trying for quality education that is really trying to change leaders in there. But you got to be honest that a majority of students, that's a lot to ask to pay for education when majority of it is free and to go for a private institution when you know that the jobs that you're coming out are, are not going to be in the public sector. Iraq post-conflict has really, it's a very large public sector. So the majority of people are working for the government and um, private sector jobs are, are new and very competitive and very well-paying and seem very exciting, but it's a big risk. The government jobs are safe, there is stability. So right now you have um, in a post-conflict society, which I would consider much of Iraq, you know, in especially in Kurdistan, it's a very collectivist society. People live together. They live in community. It's families are massive. Families get together. The national pastime is a picnic, which you go on a picnic 
all day. I'm not talking an American picnic for three hours with a beer and a hot dog. I'm saying you're, you're there for all day with multiple change of clothes as dancing. It's a beautiful collective society. And that really frames a lot of how they make choices for education, how they make choices for jobs, where they put value in a lot of things. So I, there's a lot of my dissertation about the post-conflict. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail because I feel like people know about that. People have read about ISIS. They read about the war. They, they've heard it on the news. What is interesting moment right now is that in a post-conflict society, Iraq is having the same struggles and the same questions that America is having in higher education. How do you respond to COVID? What do you do about online education? Is it considered the same? You know, how do you how do you ensure that students are learning? How do you get them to, to grow? All of these same questions are, are wrestling in higher education. How do you ensure quality education? The Ministry of Education in Iraq is struggling and really has tried to focus on quality education. The problem is they just don't have the resources. And so there is not enough resources in the public universities to do it justice. Classes are massive. They don't have the technology. The teachers are not paid enough. Teachers sometimes aren't paid. There is huge issues and the intention is good. There's just not enough resources. I mean, the probably there never is, right? But there's just not enough resources to do it justice. And so private institutions do have a, a bit of an advantage that they could offer phenomenal different degrees with technology and innovation and try things out. The real question is, is, are they trying to offer quality education or are they doing it for, for profit? And so um, the particular study, and this is why it's, it's important, it's looking at Iraq and it's looking at an institution which students choose to go to and they choose out of the normal system. They chose to leave public school to pay for this institution, knowing that this and hoping that this would lead to better jobs. And that is why measuring and asking students about student satisfaction is a very important question because they've given up a lot for it. So since they've given up a lot for it and they expect it, having a dissatisfied student is going to be a lot more vocal and a lot more challenging for an institution than having people feel that they're, they've made the right choice. Pivoting to your methodology, this is a quantitative study. How did you settle on doing that? Because I think when people hear student satisfaction, they may think, oh, this would be a really great opportunity for some qualitative searches. So talk about that process. How did you settle on your methodology? How did you implement it? There is a researcher answer and then a personal answer. So I'm going to give my researcher answer first. Um, first of all, I, I did the method that the research questions led to and that that's clearly what we all need to do. And, and in this particular field, I, I wanted to know, I wanted to understand a lot of different variables, a lot of different constructs, and that just lended itself to not just quantitative analysis, but this particular structural equation of modeling. So frankly, it was just, it was the questions I had. I tend to ask more questions that are quantitative in general. I feel so satisfied, to be honest. I love quantitative analysis. I just, I feel satisfied when you're like, you got a model and you're like, ah, oh, this is it. This is an answer. I, this makes sense. It's, it's mathematics, you know? I find qualitative, it's funny. I, there's different reputations, but I find qualitative, everybody thinks it's easier. Um, it at least has that kind of reputation. And I find it so much harder. Oh, the amount of work, but also it just, it's, it's harder to really get to answers. And I find quantitative makes sense to my brain. I get, I'm very satisfied with it. It's also because it, it terrified me in the beginning and I felt I needed to overcome it. This particular method, I was the most challenging for me in my, in my last class in Nebraska. Nebraska, first of all, I got to give a shout out to them. They, they teach research really well and they hammered it in and I really appreciate it. I, and I grew as a researcher because of it and because of the faculty and their method. It was wonderful. My last class, my advanced quantitative class, um, it was like multiple regression and beyond. And the multiple regression, I was like, I got this. And we get to the beyond and I was like, oh, I have no idea what any of this means. And that, that's the method I had to pick because I knew if I didn't do it under the guidance of a dissertation committee, under the guidance of my advisor, if I didn't take advantage of it, I would never do it. And so I kind of had to be forced to do it because if not, as an independent researcher, I think it's the, the hurdles are so larger now, especially and especially for women with, with, with kids and, and other things that your jobs, there's so much on on all of us now. The idea of then having to learn how to do this on my own, I wasn't I was never going to do it. So I I wanted to pick this particular 
hurdle, if you would, because I just felt I needed to, I needed to feel that I could do it. Um, and, and for me at the end of the dissertation, it wasn't just passing the dissertation, but knowing that, I mean, I felt really good knowing that I was able to do the thing that, that kind of threw me in the classes. So that, that felt good. So I, I kind of did it as a personal thing to see if I could. <laughs> so that felt good, to be honest. I, I would recommend other researchers out there to, to not shy away from that. When you have the resources of a dissertation committee and advisor who's going to be with you, to take advantage of that. And I think to, to lean into the advisor, to use that wealth of knowledge and time that they're going to give you. Um, and I'm really so grateful for my advisor. She, she got me to that line and I really am so grateful for her for that. So in many ways, this dissertation not only uh, assessed or looked at the social cognitive factors or institutional environmental factors of student satisfaction, it assessed your growth yeah. In statistics. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the first time I just remember at, at my defense, I was like, you know what? I, I, I know what I'm talking about. And that felt really empowering. And that's the purpose of the dissertation, right? I mean, it's a paper that no one else is going to read except for, for people. The, the idea is, is, is to, to prove that you can do this and then to, to get out there and do fantastic podcasts like this and, and journal entries and, and get your research out there. But it felt, yeah, it was, it was personal growth. And for me, it felt really exciting to be able to do that. And now it's the only type of research I want to do because it's, it's so interesting and it lends itself with just so many different ways to, to, to interplay around variables. So I was really satisfied with that. Great. As qualitative researchers, we tip our hats to you because I was reading this and I'm like, this is statistics. She probably used SPSS. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I have to say, I tip my hat to qualitative because, it, it, again, it's it's there's sometimes this this negative thing of like, oh, it, it's easier. And I, the amount of research, the amount of time that goes into qualitative, and I often think it doesn't give, it sometimes doesn't have the, the nod that it really deserves. And I'm I'm always quite impressed, and I find it more interesting papers to read. Frankly, who wants to read statistics? But uh, some qualitative quotes that that's some great. So I tip my hat to to qualitative, and frankly, I, I was more afraid of qualitative research than quantitative. So <laughs> I think I think it's it's interesting because when you do like the quant versus qual question, it, it research across the board is hard. Oh it's yeah. What makes sense? What is the puzzle piece that fits in your brain? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So anyone who completes research is just amazing. We'll just agreed. I completely agree. Yes. So were there any challenges with the method you chose? I'm not, I don't want to go into too much detail of, of, of structural equation modeling, but, but these models are, are very large and complex. And I decided, hey, you know, everybody's doing these really small models. I want to do bigger. I want to add in all of this information. I want to just measure it all. And and props to my advisor who just smiles and be like, okay, it's it's a lot. But it just she let me get there and it was just too large. There were some times that it fell apart. And um, so sometimes it's the questions you're not supposed to ask and in, in, in bringing your, in honing your skills and honing your questions. And, and that was an important part of the process and part of the challenge, but there are many parts that it was just too large and it, it fell apart. And I, so I, I had to go back and, and keep trying it over and go back to the literature and then finally realize, ah, it's the literature. Everybody's doing these particular models for a reason. And it's because this particular size works and I was just doing too much. So that was part of the challenge and also part of the success of understanding when you're doing too much of a dissertation. Some very wise words from my committee is a finished dissertation is sometimes the best dissertation. And, you know, you have your whole life to do all of this other research. So right now, just stop trying to think that I kept thinking, I want to, I want to make my mark on the research and that is your career. And right now it's just, you know, learn the method, do something, ask interesting questions that you want to know and that make an impact without thinking that you need to do it all. And so that for me, learning to let go and that there's a reason other people haven't done models that large. So that was really, that was really helpful. But frankly, the other challenge was just learning how to do it. Again, I, I struggled. And so when I was doing it in my classes, just because I felt it was, it was pretty complex and just trying to understand how this all works. So I had to do a, a lot of, of, also independent learning in, in this model for my dissertation. And, and I know that that's, that's part of the process, but at the end you're tired and you just want to be finished. And you, <laughs> but again, that led to what we talked about earlier, a, a huge level of satisfaction. Those were some of the challenges, what I just, I started too big and I needed to, to limit myself for sure. 
So outside of the fact that you were able to independently learn this model, what are some other successes you had with your chosen method? Well, one, I found that it worked. The, the method worked in Iraq and it has never, the study has never, this type of, it's, you know, SCCT, cognitive social career theory. It was, this model was designed by Dr. Robert Lent and his team of multiple teams of people. And they've done a lot of studies in the U.S. And so some of the success was, I wanted to see, can this be applied to Iraq? Can this be applied to a post-conflict society? And the answer was yes. And that in itself was exciting to me because being in Iraq, sometimes you feel pretty isolated because there's there's not a lot in so much of the research and so much of the, everything's being done in the West. And you just want to know, well, what does that mean for here? It's so different. Does this still matter? Can this still be applied here? And so for me, that was a huge success that it, it worked, that it actually did have impact. And I'll talk about it later, but some of my findings were very contrary to what findings in the West were. And for me, that was at first terrifying, but then also really exciting because I was like, oh, great, this uh, this is different. And why is that different? And what does this mean? And we'll need to look at future research to see, you know, does it matter and everything. But I, I was really excited about that. And so for, for me, applying this model in the setting of a post-conflict society in Iraq and in Iraqi Kurdistan, the fact that it worked made me feel really good about that. And that was part of the success for sure. Well, I wanted to ask a follow-up question on on your adaptation of an existing instrument to the Iraqi context, because you speak about that in detail in your method chapter and what, what steps you took to amend and alter and modify the existing uh, instrument. Can you talk us through that process of how mm. did you make it Arab appropriate or mm. Kurd appropriate? If yeah. You... Thanks for asking that question. That's an important part of, of first of all, why this why I also loved using this particular framework was because it lent itself and actually it's designed to make sure that it's context specific, environment specific. So there are many things that are going to be universal, but it, it, it's, it's basically, you have to make this work in your context. And so that is why this is such an important model and what's so exciting to not just use, but be able to adapt to the Iraqi context. And for me, when I kept thinking about what's the difference is America just being a very individualistic society. And so a lot of the questions were, again, like, how do you feel about this? And how, you know, it's I, I, and you. But in Iraq, so much, and also my my assumptions were coming into it was just so much of the decision of students' satisfaction is also, do you pick your majors or did your parents tell you you have to do this major? How do you feel when your parents aren't encouraging or, or, or better yet, you know, how much support from your parents is actually needed? How much do your friends and, and your in the peers and, and your faculty, all of this is so important. And so for me, looking at the collective part within the institution and the society, those were some of the questions that I really needed to feel that I needed to add in is, are they feeling they're not with self-efficacy? I can do this, but it's like, are you trying to do something that you actually don't feel that you actually do well? So are you trying to be an engineer when you don't feel you're good at math? That's a complete, no wonder why you're dissatisfied, right? You're trying to do something that, that you, but you feel pressure to do it. So for a lot of the questions in the instrument, I also had to add a lot of them in, particularly in the support and the barriers element to see how much of the, the collective part of the, the support of faculty, of students, of parents, how much that had an impact on satisfaction. And so that was a lot of the things that that I changed. And I again, I was more curious also to see if there was financial issues being such in a place that doesn't have access to the loans. So you can be broke in America and still go to school th- through loans. Sometimes you shouldn't do that, but it's option. In Iraq, if you don't have the cash, you're not doing it. So you're either having the cash or your parents are selling part of their assets or borrowing money from family, And it, but you're not going to a bank to, to do this. So financial pressures in Iraq actually has a huge impact. Not in my paper, and I'll explain that in a bit, but but in, in general, it was it was really interesting. I mean, and so those are some of the things that I definitely tried to, to, to see how important that the impact was there. Your data collection was in the beginning of the spring 2020 semester. You got it in right under the wire before the world kind of fell apart. Yeah. What was that experience like? Yeah, it was a week before COVID. It's so funny. 
we, I mean, we had heard something was going on, but you know, the end of February, even at rack, I was like, Oh yeah, something's going on in West China, but you know, it's fine. Or, you know, and so we, I did the survey, collected it. And then the next week we were shut down and went to online. So in a way, I'm so grateful that it happened that week. If, if it was delayed, I would not have had it at all. In a way, it's hard because now the question is, is, well, I collected all this data pre-COVID. It's so hard to now ask ourselves, does this still apply? Because so much has changed. The institution completely went online. So I think the institution in Iraq, all Iraq, in the U.S., everybody is going to have to take in not just a pause, but restructure and think about what does this mean? How do we do education post-COVID? I mean, you look at the Chronicle of Education, each cover, and it's like, oh man, we're all terrified. What does this mean for our field? So at first I was panicking, like this isn't going to be valid. This isn't going to hold any water post-COVID. And I'm actually coming out and saying, no, I disagree. In this moment that we need to restructure, in this moment that so much is change is happening, is more important than ever to try to understand what students want, how they feel about it, how do they value education, what do they need to succeed, and to offer that. So in this moment of restructure, to to really looking at this type of research and, and understanding, especially how important offering support components to students are during COVID and post-COVID. I panicked, but I'm, I'm feeling okay now about it. No, I agree. We're really at this moment, so unique, and a moment yeah. that I don't think we ever thought that we would be in. I remember being in a governance class fall 2019 and we were talking about how slow higher ed changes and how it's like, this is a culture that's going to be like entrenched. And we saw higher ed turn on a dime. Yeah. And now we're faced with conversations about what does higher ed mean and look moving forward. So I, I do think that this data is important in that conversation, especially in the unique situation that this institution is in in Iraq. Have you thought about, this is not necessarily about your methodology, but have you thought about maybe doing the survey again in mm. the virtual environment and seeing the difference? Yeah, I, I absolutely want to do this survey again and the study again. It's so hard to know, though, that will the findings still be emotional? I feel like so much, so much of us have kind of trauma from COVID and especially students. I mean, I thought it was hard and I'm done. I can't imagine they were robbed. I mean, if you think about it, our, you know, that experience in, in any type of school is such an important part of your cognitive development of, of your, the network of your friends setting you up. And that was just such a hard year. And I know we're coming out of it, but I, I don't know if we still know how they're doing. And so I do want to know, I just want to try to make sure that I ask it at a time that's appropriate and it's not a reactive time. And so that's, I keep kind of wrestling with it is when's the right time to kind of ask these questions and when are the questions going to be a reaction to what you were doing in crisis? You know, just like you said, we had to turn on a dime. It was 48 hours for our institution. I mean, we went from no online education to all of a sudden everything's online and how much of dissatisfaction or satisfaction could have just been that, that pivot. And some students thrived in it. Actually, it was, it was, it's really interesting. So I do kind of struggle with that. I think it's going to be very important, though, to compare it. I guess the question is the timing. I don't know. I still kind of wrestle with that. Is the timing now? Should we ask those questions now or do we wait for a bit to see how we've come out? But yeah, absolutely. I I think about that all the time. So my last question with methodology is this may be more of a concept that applies more to qual, but I do think, you know, regardless of the methodology you choose, the researcher is still a tool in that toolbox. Mm. So how did you, as an American woman who is an administrator at this institution, how did that identity influence your research? Mm. Yeah, really good question. I think the, the answer, first of all, is if I can be a little bit specific here, one of the constructs I wanted to, to really looked at and looked at was the environmental barriers. And this was a huge composite of a lot of different factors, which I talked about that, especially with the Iraqi context, financial barriers, just academic classes. Are, are the classes too hard? You know, students are learning these classes, taking these classes in English, or is it just your teachers are hard to understand? Is it, um, do you feel overwhelmed? And then you're looking at barriers, negative comments from people. There's just, there were, there were tons of different items that, that I was particularly looking at in this one construct and it just didn't work. 
it it didn't it didn't load it didn't the, the model itself the construct itself just didn't hold together and i was able to kind of step back and be like actually these are three different paths these are three different kind of parts of barriers and there's a financial barrier and there's social barriers and there's academic barriers and so for me one it felt really nice being comfortable enough in not just the methodology but just with the with the with the literature and with the topic at hand and the setting to know when something didn't work to be able to take a step back and be like, why is this not working? Instead of trying to force it through, just try to take a step back. And I felt really, I felt really good about that. Actually just say, Nope, this, this makes sense to break it up. And then when I ran it again in, you know, the, the SAM system and you ran it again, it, it fit better. And, and so that it itself felt good that I was able to, with my own knowledge and my own even personal knowledge, being in the Iraq context for so long, trying to be able to understand what are, what's kind of going on here with the barriers. And so I think that that, that really helped, that really helped me. And as an American and as a female, uh, I definitely don't understand the context as much as, as I wish I did for sure, even though I've been there as long. In fact, the longer I'm there, the more I realize I don't understand, but I really care about Iraq and I really care about this institution and I care about students and I really wanted to understand. And so I think that that gave me a unique moment to say, it's okay if this if some of this is not flattering, it's okay if it's, you know, it, you know, it's okay if also the research isn't interesting. Sometimes that in itself, just finding out that it worked was enough. So for me, I was afraid that it, it wasn't going to be enough. And maybe that has to do also with being American. We always want to be the best. Maybe this has to do with women feeling I had to prove myself being a female in, in a, in a higher administration with, which is a lot of males, particularly in administration at that level. So it was hard to try to ask myself how much of it was I doing because of, of my background. And so I, I felt good that I was able to just try to kind of stay with the data and try not to force something that I felt was nice and neat and just say, oh, we look great. And I'm like, nope, we have a lot of areas to improve. And so that that also felt good. So I think that that was some of the advantages that I, that I actually was able to bring in and overcome. Yeah, never heard a quantitative researcher admit that researchers are part of the study <laughs> and, well, and maybe I just haven't met enough of them right <laughs> no I think I think we are and and so much of it feels disconnected but just in the questions that we ask and the way of course we're part of it you know but for sure yeah so you your study had two research questions one was what is the influence of those four social cognitive factors and then what environmental supports and barriers relate to student satisfaction? And so at a high level, can you talk a little bit about your findings and what really stood out to you? Mm -hmm. Well, um, so I'll break those up kind of into two questions. And first is the, the social cognitive factors. The first finding was is that they have a positive influence on student satisfaction. And that's good because that's what all the other data said. So that in itself, again, is, is, is a finding that is consistent with prior research. Um, but there were some very unique things with, within the findings. But what's important is just to remember that social cognitive factors do have a direct and an indirect impact on student satisfaction. So when institutions, when we just have to ask ourselves, what do students need? First of all, go back to the social cognitive factors with self-efficacy, and there's roles that we can play with all of these, but self-efficacy is, is an extremely important factor in outcome expectations, goals, and interest. All of those played a role in student satisfaction. And what's great about this model is it showed different ways of how they mediate each other, but there's direct and indirect paths to it, but that they absolutely collectively predict student satisfaction. And that in itself, but the highest level is they predict student satisfaction. Absolutely. Not a lot of studies, not all studies with this methodology, SCCT, actually bring in environmental influences. My piece did, definitely did, so a few other studies. And what I was excited to see with my second research question is that environmental influences also affect student satisfaction. And this is a good thing for institutions because institutions can play even a larger role within those variables. There's a lot we can do clearly with social cognitive factors as well, but institutions themselves can play a role. And so if students aren't satisfied, roll up your sleeves because we could do stuff about it, especially when it comes to supports. As an administrator who understands budgets, I am 
keenly aware and I have been in that process of things that you, that budgets cuts and they're, they're probably more coming post COVID, but we've all been in the room and when people and institutions in my experience have to cut, it's always seems like the, the supports and the external things outside of the classroom that are cut, the, the student activities, but the, the advi- academic advisors are cut and tutors and all of those support things are cut because at the end we, we feel we cannot cut anything in the classroom and, and rightly so. But what's so hard is we have to understand that, especially in this study, the impact that these support has on student satisfaction was some of the largest impact. And so when you're making those budget cuts and you're just slashing tutors and advisors and everything, you realize then you have to do something else. It's not enough. It's not acceptable anymore. You want a university to survive. You want to thrive. You have to support students in their endeavors. It's not fair and it's not enough to tell students it's on you. Institutions have a role to play. And so as somebody who who has had done has done it myself, I have cut things that I have just like this is support. This is what I need to cut, but then we owe it to the students and we owe it to the institutions ourselves to try to find other ways than to offer that support. But it is it is absolutely significant that directly and indirectly it has an impact on it. What was really interesting was that as I mentioned, I broke up barriers and because it was so large into three different areas: financial barriers social barriers, and um, academic barriers. And financial barriers did not have an impact on student satisfaction, which is weird because you're like, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. If you're broke, wouldn't you be dissatisfied? And the answer is no, because I surveyed enrolled students. (laughs) Students who are broke leave university. If I had surveyed every student who had ever been at the institution, that data would have been different. But in this study, if you're serving students that are enrolled, you're serving students who can afford to go to a private institution. So because of that, it did not have the impact that I immediately assumed it would. So that was important to, to recognize academic barriers. Classes are just too hard. They're failing. Again, didn't have an impact. And that's because they leave. That's the attrition. And I don't. I didn't measure attrition at students that enrolled. So what I did find, though, is that social barriers, having parents or friends or professors telling you you're not going to make it, you're not doing well, those negative comments have a huge impact on dissatisfaction. And so that's important to see as well, because if you're cutting the positive, you know, you have to really balance it in understanding that these barriers are issues as well. Overall, though, I was really pleased to see, though, that, that overall, the social supports have a larger impact than barriers do against it. And I think we all feel that as well, especially probably COVID, like at a time that people just need to be told, like, you're doing okay. It's just, I don't think we say it enough. And I don't think we say it enough to our students. And I don't think we say it enough to ourselves, but we really do. And that has such a big impact. And those few comments when we're frustrated or something, those negative impacts do do have an impact on, on dissatisfaction. And so just being careful and measured in that, I think, was something that I, I walked away with thinking about. That was a really nice high-level ex- expectation of structural equational modeling, and you really just sold your your findings in a very understandable, very palatable way, which which is just super helpful. One one factor that was st- that stood out to me as I was reading your your findings chapter was that there was a negative relationship mm. between academic milestones efficacy on student satisfaction. Can you explain a little bit more as to why that's unexpected and what it means? Oh yeah. Let me tell you, I panicked. I mean, that's the most terrifying moment that you're like, wait a minute. In all, in all research with, I have read in an SCCT theory on social cognitive theory, it's just satisfaction, self-efficacy improves satisfaction. And that just makes so much sense. And so when I saw that it was negative, I was like, oh, I did something very, very wrong. <laughs> and so I reread it and checked everything. And so I wrestled with this for a long, long period of time. And at the end, I realized these are my findings. And so now I just need to ask myself, what does this mean? And so one, I would tell other researchers out there that there are some times that you need to trust yourself. These are your findings. Why are your findings contrary to other research? And my setting is different. So one thing I do want to say is self-efficacy, the idea that you you believe you can do something, that doesn't always mean you can do it. 
So sometimes there is that le- that issue of some of our students, especially they're coming into a different system. So they left an Iraqi high school speaking in a different language and they took a math class, a physics class, and they got a hundred percent. And they're like, I'm going to be an engineer. And they walk into an institution and they take classes in English, an American system, and they failed math 101. This all of a sudden is a disconnect. They, they believe, and they do feel that they're excellent at math and they are, I'm sure that they're good at math. The question is, is it's not working within this system. So there could be several things going on. The system is different. There could be a language issue there. There could be just a different cultural way of presenting the information or, you know, the students actually maybe weren't as good, or maybe they didn't study because they felt that they were so good. That So just because you believe that you're good at something doesn't necessarily translate with student success. So one of some of the issues, what's interesting is when I looked at the student demographics, they all said that in high school, their best classes were math and physics. And yet their lowest classes at university were math and physics. Of course, that's going to be very frustrating. So just because you believe you're good at something, if it doesn't translate later on, if it doesn't continue, of course, that's going to lead to dissatisfaction because, well, then this is the institution's fault, not mine. And it could be the institution's fault, frankly. We need to ask ourselves that. We need to be honest with that. There is every institution, everyone I talk to, there seems like there's always a few classes in the junior and senior year that students always fail. And they're like, well, it's just the way that that class works. There's always that one class And you just feel like that's a gotcha. Should that be the case? Students, I think, are always frustrated when they're like, wait a minute, everybody failed this class? That's a disconnect, either in the scaffolding, the sequencing, in in the, the way that it's taught. Perhaps it's the faculty, perhaps the students, but at the end, that is a disconnect, and that does lead to dissatisfaction. So... One is when it look when you just look at self-efficacy, especially with academic milestones, it did have a negative direct impact. But when you put it all together in the model and you think students believe they can do it, but then you add outcome expectations, they're going to have a great job. And then you have interest, they're excited about the material and then the goals, they're finishing the, and then all of a sudden they graduate all that directly leads to student satisfaction. So another way to look at it is, these things shouldn't be looked at in isolation because nothing we do is in isolation. So that's one other reason why these models are so fantastic because at the end, it's not that simple just to say what one thing does. There's a lot of different factors that are moving together. And so in a way that for me, I felt, I felt good. Okay. I mean, I'm not gonna lie. I panicked, but, um, but I did at the end, I did realize I was like, these are the findings. This is what I had. This is what this, these population, and this is why future research is needed to see is it, would a longitude study show that? Was it just this particular population? Would it be different in other institutions? Would it be different? Is this just something in Iraq? Is this something about Iraq right now in post-conflict? So a lot of that, but that was definitely something that was contrary to what everybody else had found and that was different. I actually want to point out one other thing that was different findings compared to everybody else, and that was outcome expectations. So again, outcome expectations are just what a student feels that they will get from this degree, right? At the end, I'm going to get a good job. I'm going to get a job that my parents are proud of, that I'm proud of. What's interesting is a lot of the studies in the West, there's, there's, it's not really relevant. It's not really, it has very little impact if sometimes not, there's no significance at all. And I really asked myself in Iraq, it was a major significant, it was one of the most important parts And so why the disconnect? And again, it could go back to the context. This is why context is so important when you're looking at studies. Post-war students, they're giving up a lot. They're giving up time. They're giving up a lot of money for this. They need to feel that the amount of time and money and energy that they're putting in this degree, that there will be a benefit. It's not just their growth and it's not just the sake of learning. And I know we want to pretend it is, but at the end, they do need to get a job and they need, and they owe it to themselves to get a job that they love and they feel value in and that they feel proud of. And if they believe that they're in an institution that will do that, that leads to student satisfaction. And to be honest, we all thought that as well. If I went to college thinking this is not going to land me a job, I wouldn't have done it. I knew going to college is the pathway to success in America because that's our fundamental American, you know, we're we're told this from early ages that you go to college, you're going to get a good job. In Iraq right now, they need to know that, that, that spending the time and the money at these particular private institutions can lead to jobs. And so that's why it was such a big finding, why it was different than 
what is found in the West. Kind of moving on to what does this all mean for higher education? What are some practical applications that you would like to be created from your research? Thank you. What are some practical things? One of the practical things I want to say is that the positive and achievable outcomes of graduation is a very strong asset of institutions. Lean in on that. You should be talking about all the time what your alumni and the jobs that they're doing. And if you're not, start doing it because the students are. They're talking to the graduates. They're trying to find out what they're doing. And so I do not think we should underestimate the importance of promoting what this degree will do for them. And so the concept that we are in higher education for this love of learning, you can get that at a library, as we all, you know, we've seen, you can get that everywhere in life. Education is training you and it's getting you to think differently and it's, it's, it's honing in all of these different skills and you're really developing as a person. But at the end, you need to think, why am I doing this? And really, if there isn't a job at the end of it, why would students spend so much money right now when they can get that through the rest of life? You can learn in everything you do. If you're going to spend four to six years of your life at $100,000 in the U.S., you have to think it matters something. So one, the outcome expectations right now hasn't been something that we've talked a lot about in these studies because there isn't significant findings. These are significant findings, though, it seems like in post-conflict societies in the developing world. So in those areas, we should be talking about that because students care about that. The other thing that I want to talk about is that students with high levels of self-efficacy, they still need guidance. They still need support. So we tell ourselves they believe that they can do it. They're okay. I'm going to focus on these other students. Just because you feel that you do it doesn't mean that you don't still need guidance. So continue to support students, support, support, support students. That's all I could just say is that you, we cannot offer enough different areas and different services to get students across that finishing line. Another thing I think is a really important finding and implications for practice is that the importance of academic momentum and how when students feel that they're interrupted Sometimes they have to take a leave of absence for personal reasons, but that's different. When students feel that they're failing classes and their goals of graduation are being hindered, that just leads to dissatisfaction. And so having those classes in the junior or the sophomore year that everybody fails, it's time for us as institutions to evaluate what's going on there. And is that fair? And what do we need to do to ensure that classes have a proper momentum through and that they are challenging, but they're not just challenging in this one class that, that we're not setting them up for failure, that we, we want them to succeed and we want them to, to finish their goals, which is our goal as well. And again, that the final one is that institutions are in a lot of control of the environmental influences and barriers that influence it. And so if we think the students aren't satisfied and it's on them, I would strongly disagree. And I think the research disagrees with that. I think we have found enough that institutions can play a massive role in offering support and limiting barriers for students. And that in itself will create satisfied students and satisfied students stay, satisfied students get other students to promote and satisfied students do well academically. And if that's what we care about, then we have a path to get there. And for me, I think that that's a really important blueprint, if we, if we would. Your comment about the junior classes that, you know, everyone fails. My mindset is that those, and, you know, you have them everywhere, right? You always hear about the professor where it's like, well, 75% of the class fails or drops before they, the F grade gets applied to their transcript. And my thing is like, okay, but that's the professor. Mm. Like, you can't tell me that, percentage of students get to their junior year and meet the expected milestones to get to this class and then are suddenly failing. Yeah. And what good is that? That's just stealing money because you're going to either have the student have to transfer out of a major or retake it with a different professor. Like at that point, it's like, well, that's just a cash grab. And that's like for profit. That's for nonprofit, any type of education. So I do believe that a big part of it sometimes does lie with with the professor or the professor's assumption of what their role at the institution is. Um, and so sometimes they they deliberately they themselves feel no, I, these are the these are the outcomes, these are the things that I need to have in this class, and these are the standards. And sometimes that is very real pressure coming on from other people. And this one person is actually feeling pressure from other people. I mean, we've all heard of the, the classes that someone's like, I'm holding the line so that they do well in these other classes. And sometimes they disproportionately squeeze in that one class. Sometimes it's just a disconnect in the professor. Absolutely. 
And sometimes it is a sequencing issue. Other, other people are at, who knows? I do believe though, that it's not acceptable. And I think we need to really be honest of what negative impact that doesn't just, it, it hurts the institution. It also hurts individual students. If you yourself were training and you're able to run a mile and then run half on each day, it's getting all of a sudden you you're stopped. You can't do it. Everybody wants to feel that they're every day growing and improving and to all of a sudden pass a class and do well and then hit a roadblock. The, absolutely. I think then the assumption then is this is a cash grab. This is a way you're just trying to get me to drop this major. You're just trying to prevent me from this. And it gets a students versus them attitude. And that's not what institutions are for. That doesn't help anybody. So I, I do think if that is, and I, I think it's common everywhere, but I think it's 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 time that we ask ourselves the hard question is what is going on here and we need to fix it. And it's just not, it's not okay to just tell students, bummer, you failed, everybody failed the class. I don't really think that that's fair. I think we need to ask ourselves what's going on here. And the minute you sow that seed of distrust with a student, it forever changes that relationship. And, yeah. you know, we... Um, student services person, you always hear like, oh, you're building the relationship that alumni affairs will build off of. Yeah, well, students who do that and have that distrust in the institution, they don't give back. Yeah, and not that we should look for our students to give back money, but I know it's a big thing. You know, I agree. This is also a pet peeve of mine. <laughs> yeah. I do also want to point out as a staff person, I have also played my role in which I have not always had the best interaction with students that I'm proud of. Um, hard days, overworked, tired or something. I And so I do think that when institutions are looking at how to how to improve support and, and, you know, eliminate barriers, faculty have a major role to play and staff have a major. It's at the finance department. It's at the academic affairs office. It's at student services. It's in the cafeteria. It's just if students feel at different parts, like this isn't an important part of their development, both academically and personally and cognitively. And so there's a lot going on. And so if I could go back to some of my interactions with students and I realize I'm like, you know, they don't understand a particular policy. My attitude and how I interact with them actually does impact how they feel about the institution. And, and I can have a role in helping to make that better. I I wish I kind of had thought that more years ago, but I do think Again, the amount of support that we can offer and encouragement, I think, goes a long way. And the students give a lot of faith in the beginning. But when that trust is kind of broken, it's a shame because I do think that it's it's often given the benefit of the doubt. And so we owe it to them to keep that trust. And I appreciate your honesty in that moment. But I would encourage you to give yourself grace because I also have <laughs> yeah. too many to count. Um, of interactions I had with students where I was frustrated at something else and the student came at the wrong time or, you know, <laughs> having worked in customer facing. It's a hard offices, job. Yeah. You know, you have bad days and we are human and no one is perfect. And I think the ability that we feel, and I, I'm going to describe it for me as guilt. Um, I don't want to push that on you. Yeah. Um, I always think of like the fact that I feel that and the fact that I've tried to remember that with my next student interaction, it is that learning moment and, you know, mistakes we make as entry-level staff members. It, it is. And it's unfortunate that that definitely does impact that student. So I'm not, don't come for me, Twitter people. Um, <laughs> but like, I'm not absolving my impact on that poor student or students, but students aren't perfect in every moment. We're not perfect. We're oh, yeah. all human and we deserve the ability to learn and develop. I'm all about giving everyone grace because I'm I think of all the time, we all need it. So thank you. Yes. <laughs> sure. How do you see your findings moving forward in a scholarly manner? Like, are mm. you looking to kind of continue this research? What? How would you like others to pick up this topic? Yeah, I I would love, and I, again, I, I can't thank you guys enough. It was, it was nice because of this podcast, I actually had to reread my dissertation and it was really nice to get in it. And I was like, yeah, I kept telling myself, you, you got to get this published. You got to break this down and, and get this published. And I think for so many people, the dissertation it, it was a team, you know, yes, you do everything yourself, but you have champions and you have people on, on it telling you, you can do this. And now all of a sudden you're graduating and no one's going to bug you if you haven't written that paper yet, the research, except, you know, your evaluation in three, three years. But the, the point is, is that I, I appreciate having moments like this because it reminds us to, to continue to, to break it down. So that is definitely a dream. I have to say, though, 
maybe it was just COVID, but I, I really love the medium of this podcast. I think this is a genius way because I think, talk about pivoting, but we've only done research on paper and journal articles and not everyone's going to read it. And so this is a, a nice a nice change that I think other people would say, ah, this is interesting research. And I find it, I find this, this will help my, my career or this, this means something to me, or, or if not, I at least find it interesting. So I, I appreciate that in itself, but yes, I, I would love to not just publish this, but I would love to look again at more institutions in Iraq, um, particularly in the public system of how they measure student satisfaction, considering that it, it's free, um, but it's very limited resources. So some of that seems hard to ask those questions because there's just so limited resources and students seem dissatisfied, but one way to help that would be resources. And that's a direction a lot of people don't want to go. So, but that would be interesting to look at public institutions. It would be interesting to see if these findings still look at different parts in Iraq, looking at in different places in Baghdad that have a, a different group of students. I again, did this in Iraqi Kurdistan with predominantly Kurds. And, and so it'd be interesting to see if other parts of Iraq ha- have the same findings. But mostly I just want to see other post-conflict places in the developing world. How, what, how are they doing? And can we get past the conversations of war, which are important, but sometimes reliving the trauma is, is enough. Like students, they want to talk about something else. They want to talk about things that are improving there. And that's exciting. I mean, there's some great change that's going on there and, and there's some great development. And, and so I think people want to start hearing about that and talking about some different things. So for me, I would love love to just kind of do do more research in Iraq um, because clearly it's it's something that means means a lot to me. So what's up for Rachel after the doctoral program? Any any kind of research you're working on or or just professional plans? Any anything any personal happenings that might have happened that we can edit out if we have Oh yeah no you don't have to I mean a, a long nap because I have a five week old so I am so excited last Last night I did get five hours of sleep, not to boast, but it was the best I've had in months. It's like my my baby girl knew I needed it, so I appreciate it. Right now, I, I'm grateful to to stay at the institution that I'm at. I love, love working there. Having getting a dissertation, especially I'm gonna do a plug-in for online. It, this is the first time I had done a degree while working and I was immediately able to apply what I was learning, look at it in different contexts. And I found that really rewarding versus taking just a complete pause and just studying. And so for me, every time I read something, I was like, this, this, this is something I can use. And so I found this really rewarding and doing this even at a distance was some of the best classes I've ever had. And so I I actually really appreciate that. I'm also excited to not do any more schoolwork, but I I definitely like staying in higher education. I want to continue to be right now in an institution that's pretty young, that doesn't also, where we are, we need to do more research and we especially need to do quantitative research. So measuring impact with student momentum, persistence, what really matters, looking at student achievement. I also think I would love to kind of look at critical thinking. We all talk about it, that we do it. We don't really measure it because we don't know how to, and we we're scared to measure because we boast that we do it. But I would love to really measure a lot of that and see the, the impact that different students are. So I have a lot of research in the pipeline ideas, but but right now, um, nothing concrete. I'm just trying to get my dissertation kind of on paper so more people can read it. And the last question we always ask every participant, what are any pieces of advice you would have for individuals who are currently on their doctoral journey? That could be classwork, that could be dissertation, that could be post-dissertation. What what is the sage advice you have for the doctoral younglings? One, uh, a few pieces of advice if I can just, and again, I kind of alluded this earlier, but pick something that you're interested in, but pick a sizable, it does, you're not going to change the world and that's okay. They're not asking you to. And so just pick something that's interesting and, and get it done and stop trying to, to grow. And and I made that mistake myself and I had to keep editing myself down. And so at the end, pick something that's interesting, but a question and answer that question and trust that your committee does not, is not out to get you. And I don't think that they're out to try and do the gotcha and everything. They want you to be able to demonstrate that you've learned and that's got to feel great for them too. They, they, they want to see that you can do this. And so looking at them as assets, especially your advisor, knowing that, that this is the one time in your life that you can continuously get advice, lean into that and, and kind of push yourself in uncomfortable uh, methods. And also, if I can do a final thoughts, I just want to thank advisors because I think uh, dissertation advisors 
it's a ton of work and sometimes it's unseen. And I got there because my dissertation advisor was, was just so supportive and read so many drafts and was so helpful and positive and always just told me you can do it. And I really appreciate that. And she, even if she thought I was going too big, she let me get there and <laughs> myself. And so I really appreciate that. And um, also my, my bosses at, at work were really beneficial. And so I think when you're doing your dissertation committee, if you need help, if it's from your work, if it's from your family, if it's from your committee, ask for it because it's a really hard thing finishing a dissertation. And at the end, to walk away because you don't want to ask for help, whether it's time off from work or support at work or support from your advisor or more dishes at home, whatever you need to do, if you need to ask for it, ask for it and get it done. And it feels really good when, <laughs> when it's done. Yeah. Awesome advice. And I, it's always important to understand that it may feel like an isolated journey, but you're not alone. And there is yeah. a network there to help support you. Well, Great. thank you so much for talking about this unique research study. Um, it was really interesting to hear about a topic. You know, we do hear about student satisfaction, but the context and location of the study was definitely unique and, and very eye-opening. So thank you so much, especially mm-hmm. with a five-week-old. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you would have scheduled earlier, you might have been giving birth while recording. I know. I did strategically wait to this week. I was like, well, let's give it a little bit of time. So anyway, I, I really appreciate the opportunity and I applaud you guys for this uh, new method. I think this this new, new median. I think this is really exciting. So thank you guys for this opportunity and for your idea to do this. This is great. Many thanks again to you, our listeners. Remember to subscribe to hear all future episodes of the Beyond the Defense podcast, where new episodes are released Fridays. And be sure to follow the Beyond the Defense podcast on Facebook and Twitter to receive updates on upcoming episodes and to get more information about sharing your research. See you next week. Bye.